Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. Hello, everybody. Feels good to be back in front of a mic again. It's been a while. Today, I've got Michael Kennedy. Michael's the host of Talk Python to Me podcast. He's also the creator of some great online courses to teach Python. There are two courses done and one that just launched as a Kickstarter campaign. And by the way, we're giving away copies of these uh, courses. To sign up, go to pythontesting.net slash subscribe and sign up. This podcast is not sponsored by Michael. I just believe in what he's doing, and I appreciate what he's added to the community with his podcast. So I wanted to talk about that with him and talk about the course. This podcast is also not sponsored by PyCharm, although Michael plugs it heavily at the end of the episode. I probably should have asked them for some funding since he plugs it pretty hard. Speaking of sponsors, though, Rollbar sponsored episodes 17 and 18. That was really cool of them. And uh, so thanks, Rollbar. If you'd like for me to plug your thing, visit pythontesting.net slash sponsor and get in touch with me. This episode is supported by Patreon supporters. Thank you, all of you Patreon supporters. Visit pythontesting.net slash support to get me to do more episodes. Yep, more supporters, more episodes. That's kind of how it works. So this episode... Uh, during the episode, we talk about several of the episodes on on his podcast, Talk Python to Me, that involve testing, which is pretty cool. Except he didn't bring up the episode where he interviewed me. Oh, well. Put links to that and all the episodes we talk about and his courses, um, which we also talk about, and his podcast and all that in the show notes. The show notes will be at pythontesting.net slash 20. Today, um, today, we've got Michael Kennedy from the Talk Python to Me podcast. Uh, Michael has been like really great to try to encourage me for my podcast. And he started up just a little bit before uh, I did and uh, has been helping me out whenever I have questions. And it's been great. If anybody on my audience has not heard of uh, Michael Kennedy and the Talk Python to Me podcast, um, tell me, Michael, tell me a little bit about it and who you are. Hey, everyone. Brian, thanks for having me on the show. Um, my name is Michael Kennedy. I'm the host of Talk Python to Me, uh, one of the Python podcasts. And I've been interviewing a, a ton of people in the industry and, and really trying to spread the stories of the Python community, including a bunch of ones on testing, which we'll talk a bit about. Um, you interviewed Harry. I, we both interviewed Harry Percival. Yeah, we both had Harry Percival on the show. That's right. Yeah. He's a great guy. What other uh, testing episodes do you have you got yeah so i talked to harry percival and he was on the 10th show or 11th uh depending if you are zero based or not and he, he was on the 10th real show let's say and we talked about his book obey the testing goat and his website and all the work that he's doing there so we had a lot of fun with that and and talked about his python anywhere uh company that he works for and works with and uh, they're doing really cool stuff the other two that i did are more recent episodes and those were within the last month and a half or so. I talked to a guy named Austin, Austin Bingham. And Austin, I know from some of the conferences that I speak at and, and traveling around and stuff, we seem to run to each other in, in London all the time. But being here in Germany for the year, I'm going to a couple of different conferences. And he and I were both at uh, NDC Oslo. So the conference up in Oslo, which was really cool to be up there and see that place. It's somewhere I've always wanted to go. So I ran into him and he was doing a, a presentation on 
something I had never heard of, but was really fascinating called mutation testing. So you guys, you and I, have, we've joked about whether unit tests are good things and what they are, but everybody has this concept of like unit tests, functional tests that you're going to run against your code, right? So uh, I want to prove some functionality works. I'm going to write some tests that's going to exercise that code and assert some things, try to make it through exceptions and, and verify that. So how do you know those tests are good? The traditional answer has been code coverage, right? So if I went and I told you, hey, Brian, I have this awesome project and it is so super tested, like you won't believe how tested it is. It has a thousand unit tests, right? Like that, that statement alone doesn't mean much, right? Uh, not to me, really, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know it does. But if I said it has a thousand unit tests and it has... 92% code coverage, that's a stronger statement, right? Re- regardless of whether it's like something you should aim for or whatever, like it's definitely stronger to say, I have these tests and they have some level of coverage. But th- there's a difference between executing code and actually testing code. So this concept of mutation testing that Austin is uh, building the, the Python libraries to facilitate is what it does is it looks at your code. You have your code and you have your unit tests. And then you apply this mutation testing. And what it does is it will fiddle with your code. It'll take your real code under test and it'll change a little bits of it. Like if you have a test that says uh, if the number of users is greater than 10, it'll possibly switch that greater than sign to a less than. Or it might replace a variable being passed to a method with just some constant or some other modified version of the variable. And if it can make those changes and your tests still pass, well, your test must not actually be verifying that bit of functionality, even though it may have covered it. So that's a really interesting idea, this mutation testing. Yeah, I think, um, um, yeah, uh, the, the combination of uh, the mutation testing and then the, um, the, the, the translations, the different input that Hypothesis does um, and combined with some code coverage might, yeah, it, it's it's interesting at least. It's it's definitely interesting. Yeah, the other one. Did, did you have uh, David McKeever about hypothesis on your show? No, I haven't. Okay, he's yeah, he's a great guy. He does. He approaches this automatic sort of testing story from a different angle, from the property based testing side. So instead of writing traditional, I struggled with the words, the the nomenclature of it when I first learned about it. Like, well, if we have traditional unit tests, we have this other way of testing that also runs these unit tests. Well, then what the heck do you call the original ones? And so what it seems like people are settled upon is example-based testing. So like if I want to test, I can register a new user. Maybe I've got to call a function. I've got to pass like a name and an email address. In a traditional test, I would pass like an actual concrete email address and a a real username or or something like this. In the property-based testing with Hypothesis, you just say, I need a string, maybe formatted like this regular expression, to go into this uh, email field. I need a string to go into the name, and maybe I need a number to go into you know some numerical field. And then the system will automatically you know vary the inputs and and choose the examples for you and try it with you know sort of corner cases like for example it might pass none for the email address, whereas you might have never tested that. It, it really is a, a very powerful way. I haven't had a chance to do a lot with it because the idea is kind of new to me, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I think it's actually cool. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked with either of these yet, but uh, 
So some of those cases that you brought up of um, of different types of input and um, what are some of the special things that you might pass in, like you know, like the empty string or none or things that aren't strings or Unicode or being splitting up your input into interesting sets of input. Those are those are pretty cool. Those are really cool, and it it seems to be pretty clever. I think it might be more exhaustive, but just detect the, the clever bits. But it seems to be really good at, at sort of finding the edge cases. So if you have some function, it's allowed to take you know one through ten. You know it would would probably like find an error when you pass in eleven. And instead of going like, well, it seemed like one million two hundred forty six didn't work. It would probably say eleven didn't work. And if it's like a series of steps it has to take to find that, it'll actually give you the, the steps to reproduce your bug. So it'll say, well, first I created this thing and then I passed this variable and then this, this value and then I called this function and then it failed. And that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And it'll discover those steps. The thing that hurts my head to think about these things is, um, is trying to figure out where I put it in my workflow. Like, do I write those ahead of time before... I mean, mutation testing, I'd clearly have to have my source code first. And hypothesis doing the, uh, what, um, I guess, what did you call it? Like example-based testing? Example-based example, example based testing is what we, uh, we were, we're calling it. Yeah. So that, like, when do I do that? Do I do it, like, during development? Do I do it, does the, does the QA team do this? Well, I would say that those two projects are both super interesting, and they come at sort of solving this problem of how good are your tests from either from automation on the hypothesis side or, you know, actually tweaking things and see what's detected on the mutation side. But I feel like the hypothesis bit, the hypothesis library is farther along in practicality. So there's, uh, there's real complexity to vary every bit of your code and, and do that in a, a performant way with mutation testing. They're, they got some good progress on making that faster, but it's also, I think that's that's something that comes later in my mind. You know, Austin may Austin may disagree with me on this, but I feel like that that comes later. But okay. if I was starting a new project and I were writing tests, if they were non-trivial, I would probably use hypothesis. Okay. And I say probably because I haven't really started a new project since I've learned about it, so I haven't really had a chance to make that. To experiment to see how that goes, but uh, it seems it seems yeah. pretty much as hard or as easy as the traditional testing, but it has this ability to cover all the edge cases. So yeah, it seems like the payoff is high. Yeah, I, I probably should talk to these guys, but I I also um I'd like to talk to somebody that's using this in for a production system and and to try to find out how they're using it and who's writing the tests and stuff like that, but. Yeah, I think there's a few interesting examples. Um, I don't know who the developers are, but I think David talked about hypothesis being used at Twitter. I could be wrong about that, but you know, some some pretty cool examples that he has. Some high profile companies making yeah. use of it. Okay. Um, hey, we skipped over something I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, one of the things I wanted to um, ask you about is your transition. You um, you used to be like a nine to five. Well, not really, but you used to work for somebody else, and now you don't. Yeah, I, I used to be like a, a nine to seven person, and, <laughs> and now, now it's even worse. Yeah, so actually, that's a really uh, that's a big deal for me. I'd been for many years just uh, an employee at a company. I'd been doing training, and I'd been doing like scientific 
software writing and all, all kinds of things, but I've always done it for another company. And I've, for many years, I've wanted to start my own project, but having kids and a wife and mortgage, it always seemed really not worth the risk. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like, I'd be really fun to go do this thing, but eating is fun too. <laughs> so, you know, the podcast, when I started it a year and a half ago, really took off much better than I expected. Um, way, way better than I expected. And I, I never really had huge plans for it because I didn't ex- expect it to do a lot, but it, it did take off. I had a lot of people wanted to come and support the show. I've had a lot of great companies come on and sponsor the show as well as a, a ton of people listen to the show. So I've been sort of trying to decide, well, what am I going to do? And I, I thought the, the thing that I could do that would really contribute to the community that I think would be reasonably valuable and unique would be to start creating a bunch of online courses that people that listen to the podcast that get super inspired about whatever it is we're talking about, for example, hypothesis, if they wanted to learn more about it, it would, you know, it would be really great if there was like an awesome course that followed on to it. Right. And so I've, I launched a company and I started creating online courses and I, I'm on this mission to create, uh, my original mission statement was create 20 online Python courses that are sort of unique and special in two years. Um, I'm sort of on track, maybe it'll be 15, but I'm definitely working to create a bunch of uh, really cool Python courses. And so in February, I quit my job. I launched that first course on Kickstarter. It went really well, and I've been pretty much writing online courses since then. Um, and that's, I, I've been enjoying watching uh, the, 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 the course of your courses, the progression of how your courses are going, partly because I'd like to try to put together a course at some point uh, myself, uh, but also... Um, because there's 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 all I've always I always run into people that are trying like I said trying to use uh, trying to use Python and trying to use testing or even just Python and they they're they're experienced programmers so they want to jump in like really fast so I'm always on the lookout for for ways for people to 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 learn this stuff quickly and um, and the com- especially the combination of your first two courses I think would. Uh, apply. Uh, that's why I'm really excited and wanted to have you on because this combination of the first two courses, um, like really, um, uh, I think that they'd be great ways for people to get up to speed quickly um, and get on to get on with their jobs. So uh, that's cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, the goal was to take people who know some programming of some sort. It didn't really matter what language, right? If you knew JavaScript, if you knew C plus plus, whatever. But to get you up and running on Python really quickly, but also in a way that after you went through the courses, you fit in, right? You, you felt comfortable in the language um, and so on. So like I started out building my first course, which was Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps. And, and there's a ton of Python courses and tutorials. And you know the problem that I see with so many of the online courses or even non-online courses, the courses is you teach people a ton of facts and then it's up to them to put it together, right? So like maybe if I was doing a like some kind of class, I might say, okay, well, today we're going to talk all about language ideas. We're going to talk about loops and strings and functions and we're going to just talk about all the details. And, you know, you guys are grown-ups, you'll put that together in something interesting, I'm sure, right? And you'll somehow remain motivated through this whole thing. And I think that whole process of, of teaching that way or learning that way strips 
strips the joy out of it. I think it, it filters people out who don't, don't see the end of it as having, you know, enough of a payoff to like sort of do a suspension of disbelief to like work your way through all these little facts and details till you get there. So what I said is, well, maybe I'll do it backwards. Like maybe we'll just like start writing apps. And if we get to a thing that you don't know, well, then we'll stop and we'll talk about it for a minute and then we'll just keep on writing the app. So my first course is like seven hours of just like building 10 different applications with little intermissions where we spend like five minutes on some idea, like five minutes on talking about the structure of classes. And then we go build like a and d game with it or continue building a and d game. And I, I like that. Um, I like the model I watched through, through those videos and, um, that sort of a model, I know it makes sense. I know the, to go through a uh, to go through a project and learn while you're watching the project happen. But I've seen it in book form, and in book form, it drives me nuts. I don't know why it just bugs me because I want to I want to see the reference in a book. Uh, but in the video in the video form, it works great, and then I can use I can use some other reference uh, to look up the, all the details. Yeah, I'm glad it works for you. That's. Yeah, I kind of envision like, well, what if I, what would it be like if, if I sat down with somebody who was a competent programmer of some variety but knew nothing about Python? Like, what would I do if I sat down with them for a day or two and just like we we work through some examples together? That's, that's kind of what I was hoping to achieve. Yeah, I think um, I think it's uh, I think you hit it. Um, I w- I'm actually going to try to do. I've got some um, um, some projects at work actually that um, we've got some some tools that people don't really know how to use and there is training available online and other places, but they're, they're huge. And I just need these people to learn like a couple different features. So I was going to try to do like screencasts and uh, with like a voiceover just to kind of walk them through it. And then they can rewatch. That's a great idea. Yeah. I think it's, but yeah. So the model of uh, if you were, if you, if you had Michael just sitting next to you teaching you, this would be what it'd be like. And so, what one of the things that I really like is the uh, the second course with the Python. What, what's the title of the second one again? <laughs> it's uh, write Pythonic code like a seasoned developer. At work, we started using um, Flake Eight. I think I think that's what we're using to uh, yeah, it's a nice one to to try to streamline uh, and automate some of the style stuff. But I wanted to get people to to be able to write more better code. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting is when people are new, I, I feel like they focus on PEP8. And those of you who don't know what PEP8 is, PEP, the PEPs in Python are Python enhancement proposals. And PEP8 talks about like the f- way you should format and structure your code. But it turns out that that stuff is pretty easy. That stuff tools will talk, the tools will address, right? Like Flake8 and PyFlakes and um, Pilot, those types of things will will tell you. Oh, you're supposed to name your variable this way, or oh, your function shouldn't be uppercase, right? That kind of stuff. But the real to be sort of really comfortable in Python, you got to go to the next level, and you've got to understand almost the design patterns of the language. Yeah. And so what I yeah so what I did was I I said all right well let's see if I can put together a list of some cool stuff that, that might be interesting for people. And I wasn't necessarily sure it would be a class. I was just going to talk about it somehow. And I came up with, you know, after a little bit of research, I actually came up with 30 different little design patterns and idioms and so on. I'm like, okay, this is pretty cool. And actually, in the end, my class has, I think, 52 right now. Maybe it'll get more later. But 52 little programming examples of 
do this, don't do that, and, and this is why in Python. I know it's different for everybody. In my case, I, I see a lot of code that looks like C code. And so trying to have somebody get look at some of these different patterns to see, oh, yeah, I can do it. It's, it's, when you're in Python, do it different. Don't, do, don't write C code in Python. Yeah, that's one of the real challenges is, you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse from Python, of Python, is that it's so easy to read and learn that people come from other languages and I feel like they don't take it seriously. They don't take Python or learning Python seriously. They're like, oh, I see. Okay, so no curly braces and colons and indentation. Cool. So let me go write my my while loop like I would in C or let me write my getters and setters like I would in Java or something like that. But just because the language is easy to to like pick up the, the basics of it quickly doesn't mean that, that you should just take these algorithms and move them over, right? And there's there's usually a much simpler way, something that's more like in line with the way C Python itself will like try to understand and execute the code and, and so on. And when you some really powerful examples of when you see the differences next to each other, you're like, oh wow, that's that's so much better. Right. But if, if you don't get those concepts then you're missing you're missing those really great opportunities of why Python's special. So uh, speaking of Python being special, um, do you think it's I mean, we do talk about Pythonic code and Python style more than more than we talk about it in C++, for instance. And I don't know about other languages. Any ideas why? Why, why do we care so much in Python? I think I do agree with you that other languages don't care as much. I mean, they not to say that they don't care, right? They certainly do have their own styles and idioms and people do care, but they seem to care more in Python. Like, we have a name for it, right? Yeah. We have Pythonic code. We don't just have, like you know, Python code that fits in or idiomatic Python or something. We have like a special name for it because I think it, it does matter more. And I've been thinking about why that is. I think that it maybe comes down to a handful of reasons, two or three. One is what I was kind of talking about before is like Python is so easy to get started because it's such an easy language to learn if you're just going to kind of like port your knowledge to this syntax. But it actually has a bunch of really interesting ideas, generators, comprehensions, tuples, um, foreign loops, all, all these, these things that, you know, there are other languages, they don't have them. And if you really understand how to use those building blocks, then you can create something different and better and more readable and more maintainable in Python. So I think that because people so easily come to the language, but they don't easily actually become comfortable in the language. Learning some of this Pythonicness and um, style it, it helps people learn, learn, actually learn how to program in Python better than hopefully. Oh yeah, I would say it certainly is less error prone for for many of the the ways you might do it, right? For you know, just take an example as like there's not really a numerical for loop in Python. This is like a super simple example. If you know Python, you know this, right? Yeah. If you didn't know, and you're like, well, I need I need like a num like an incrementing numbery type thing. <laughs> Right, so maybe you'll make a like a variable and assign it zero, and you'll do a while loop, and inside the loop you'll do a plus, and then you want to get data out of a collection, so you'll index it out by ID or you know by by index. There's chances that you get those indexes wrong, that you do a, you know less than versus less than equal on the length and all that kind of stuff. Right, so there's there's cases where you might introduce bugs. Whereas if you just for item in collection work with item. You know, unless you screw up the syntax, that can't go wrong. So I think it's I think it's important because it makes your code less error prone, not just more readable. 
Yeah. On the two courses, the first course goes through these uh, these different applications. Your second course doesn't build an application. I think it works, but it, was that intentional or just, just happened to be that way? Yeah. So the first course, the primary goal was take people who don't know much or anything about Python and get them pretty proficient in a way that will keep them engaged from beginning to end. Right. And so the way that I thought, okay, the most important thing to do is that you're constantly building something cool and you're seeing progress. Right. And we'll periodically take breaks and talk about the more like theoretical bits or whatever. Whereas the Pythonic code, like that's made for people that already know Python. You know, you've been doing Python for a year or two. And then you're going to come check this out, maybe six months, but you're not new to Python when you take that course. And so I felt like we have 50 things to cover. And you were already inspired and, and comfortable with Python. Let's make it more of a reference thing, right? So if you want to be able to jump back in and go, oh, what was that design pattern where we did this cool I don't know, dictionary merge, right? There's like a two minute video that that's all you need to look at for that. Or what was that, you know, what was that thing where we actually used generators so that we could make it so much faster? Oh yeah, that's this little second. So I, I kind of wanted it to be a reference that you could jump around, but also like I couldn't come up with 50 apps and, and still <laughs> get it practical. Well, I think it was a good call anyway, because even if you had done apps, I think like you said, it's, it's aimed at more intermediate developers. So they're not going to do the application anyway. They're going to apply it to whatever thing they're working on. Right, exactly. I feel like they need less context and more focus yeah. at that place. So that's what I tried to give. Yeah. And then, and then like, wow, you just came out with a third course. Yeah, that was uh, yesterday. It's, that's, you know, it's been announced and sort of running on Kickstarter for a whole 28 hours or something. <laughs> Well, I, I'm uh, I'm actually pretty excited about that one. That's uh, it's for entrepreneurs, right? The, the the title is Python for Entrepreneurs, and this is something I wanted to create for a really long time. But I wanted to make sure that I had these other foundational things in place where people are like, "Well, I need a little more help with this or that." Like, okay, well, you can go over there and learn it when you're ready. You know, come over here and we'll we'll build something awesome. So, it launched on Kickstarter yesterday. And the idea is if you want to make some kind of online business based around a web app or something with a web API, you know, some, some, some sort of core web technology, you're going to have to build that thing, right? You have to build the web app. So let's just say you're building like, a, like some kind of paid email service. You have to build the thing that is the email. It's going to have to store data database and manage user accounts. But when you actually go to try to launch that thing and turn it into a business, there's like a zillion little loose ends. And I, I feel I've done this a couple of times. I've, I've built some online business that were successful. And I feel like building the app itself is like 30% of the work, maybe 40%. But you've got all the stuff, all the technical programming stuff that surrounds it, right? So you've got to accept credit cards. You've got to store uh, user accounts securely, uh, hashing the passwords in the right way. You've got to do inbound, you got to do outbound email, like when a user buys something, send them a receipt. If they forget their password, reset it. You got to do inbound email um, with domains, you got to do SSL. I, I could go on and on, right? There's like, you got to do deployment, just it's never ending. And so the idea is like to try to cover those in a way that you, it's not like a six months research project, but it's like a two week tie up the loose ends project. 
one of the exciting things is it's got a pyramid tu- tutorial, and I've always wanted to try pyramid. Um, I I do think it gets under underappreciated. I just did an episode with Donald Stuffed, well, just uh, like a month ago, uh, number sixty four, if people care, and he's he's in charge of. PyPI, the Python package index, and all the packaging stuff, right? The website, you know, pypi.python.org and, and so on. And they are rewriting that. It, it's like super old, super clunky, and it's getting a rewrite. And it's actually the rewrites like in a beta type thing at um, pypi.io, I believe. So people should check that out. That's really cool. And he talked about how he started out in Django. And Django was okay, but he didn't want to use a lot of the building blocks that it is sort of paradigm preferred that you use, let's say. So he felt like he was fighting a framework. He then switched to Flask, and Flask was better, but it wasn't quite doing what he wanted. So specifically around testing, actually, he felt like he couldn't test his apps as well in, the, in Flask. And then finally he switched to uh, Pyramid, and now PyPI is now getting its final touches put on it, built on top of Pyramid. And my web apps as well. One of the reasons I chose Pyramid, even though you know, maybe from a pure popularity contest, I should have chose Django. In my course, what I, I want to make this super concrete and super real for people. I don't want to talk just in theory like, yeah, you should do this type of you know, processing for credit cards, or you should do this to monitor errors. But I want to make it really concrete. So uh, during the course, like I'll open up you know, my, my training site and say, look, here's how I'm accepting credit cards. When you bought this course, this is what happened. Here's how the email went out. Here's how you got put into the mailing list. Here's how you're stored in the database. Here's how I hashed your password in a way that if somebody stole the database, it's highly unlikely they could do anything useful with it and so on. Right. I think that's incredible. And I think actually I'm, 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 I'm definitely going to try to watch this course, but I, I think it probably would apply to people that even if they don't want to do that, do it themselves, actually, it just to see all of the little details you got to go through. Um, I have no idea how you guys fit it all into one course. So is it like, like 97 hours or I, I think it's going to be longer than the other ones. I think it's probably going to be 15 hours is my guess. But yeah, it's definitely going to be, be longer. Yeah, I think it's not just for people who like want to become solo entrepreneurs. Like you say, like it's certainly if you were going to hire a consultant to do part of your app, you would know, okay, I see like this is what I want done like this. Can you just help me do that, right? It's also if you worked at a business, like let's suppose you work at like some big mega corporation and they're like, all right, you and those those two folks over there, you guys are going to launch this new online endeavor for us, right? If if that's your job, then you basically need to do the same thing like that I did to launch my business, or a lot of people did to launch their online business. Well, and I'll, that's 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 the kind of person I wanted to help. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. I think that one of the the whether you you thought of this or not, you probably did. Um, but some of the people that, that are helped by this are. They're they're not really gonna they're not gonna do an external website. It's a it's it's something to to pass information around within a company. And so there's not there's not a budget for hiring people. It's it's got to get it's got to get done fast. And you only have like one or two people doing it. Yeah, that I really I feel like people get super excited about either projects or starting some online thing, and they go and they build it, and then they launch it, and it just kind of sputters out, or it. It never quite gets launched because, oh my gosh, I'm on the 20th extra little item that I hadn't thought about. Like, 
how do I set up Nginx uh, to reverse proxy over to MicroWSGI to run on, you know, DigitalOcean or, or whatever, right? Like, I didn't know that was a thing I needed to know in order to create my for sale by owner for boats company, but apparently I do, right? So hopefully we, I can help the world not suffer <laughs> through those things. <laughs> we'll see. Well, well, cool. Well, I wish you luck on this. Let's see. Um, I think I had some other things. Oh, yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the courses that you've done are in Python 3. So are they completely useless to people using Python 2 or... Yeah, they can't use it. No, I'm just teasing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, for example, I looked at the certainly the 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 jumpstart one is there's very little differences, and there's a few things that you can do to make those differences even smaller. But like even the idiomatic one, there's a couple of items that don't make sense for Python two developers. There's a couple of items that don't make sense for Python three three developers. <laughs> for for example. Python, I think it was 3.4, could be 3.3, 3.3 or 3.4, introduced yield from, which is really great for working with generators recursively or building gen- recursive generators, let's say. And then and 3.5, they introduced some special sort of dictionary building syntax. And those pieces that talk about that, they don't make any sense. But, you know, there's like 48 other ones that, that totally do, right? You might want to do... I must have missed those because actually we've got we've got both both Python three uh, in at work. We're using both Python three and Python two for different different purposes, and um, and I think I think all of them apply at least all the ones that I really care about people understanding. And you know it's pretty easy to figure out if you try something out and it doesn't work. It just tries to yeah. It it'll encourage you to try to figure out why you're using Python two if you really need to, and move to three if you yeah. can. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, there was a few things that I didn't address that you could. I maybe mentioned in passing, like for example, uh, I talk about range using range with foreign loops for sort of numerical processing and you know incremental processing of you know one two three so on. Yeah. And you know, range is considered dangerous in Python too, and you should use X range, right? Like those things I maybe mentioned in in passing, or old style Python two classes versus new style Python two classes, which are basically Python three classes. But you know, the thing to think about, I think is is really interesting. Brett Kennan and I talked about this for a while. He's one of the Python core developers uh, on on the episode that he was on. You know, in 2020, Python two is going to be end of life. Now, to me, the year 2020 feels like it could be in science fiction, some sort of science fiction future. Like there could be robots that look like humans roaming the earth and flying machines. And, but you know, that's not the reality, right? 2020 is in like three and a half years and then Python two is gone. And it's not, you got to start thinking about Python three. Then you got to be you have to have completed your upgrades to Python three in three and a half years. So if I'm building online classes and they're going to have any sort of, you know, applicability going forward, I kind of felt like one from a, just an investment perspective, it makes sense to invest my time in Python three stuff. But also I feel like I would be doing something of a disservice to the community to continue to encourage Python two. Yeah, I think so too. I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I'm writing some new, new instructional uh, content and uh, starting in Python three, I'm going to go back and, and see how much of it needs tweaked to run in uh two seven. Uh, but nice. um, how about your book? Yeah, that 
So the the uh, the first edition of the book was um, uh, the one that's out on sale right now um, is is written for Python two point seven and a lot of stuff doesn't work in three five um, which is a bummer mostly print statements actually I think that's it uh, I think I just I riddled the whole thing with print statements and I I didn't always remember to do the right from future import print function. Print, yeah, print, yeah, exactly. Which um, I it's just, unfortunate because, like, conceptually, that's a meaningless difference. It means nothing to you whether you have to put parentheses or not parentheses <laughs> in your print statement. But it also means that if somebody picks up that code and tries to run it, you know, in their Python three app, like, it doesn't work. It's frustrating. Like, this doesn't work. Yeah, print thing is malformed or whatever. Right? Like, some of the esoterics about two versus three and versions of. Th- two and versions of three i don't really care about like and i and for most code doesn't matter like the the uh, notion that you should use in some versions of python 2 you should use uh, x range instead of range because x range is a uh what is it a iterator generator generator in most code it doesn't matter in most code that i deal with it's like the computer's got tons of memory making a list ahead of time it's gonna be fine I, yeah, if I have 10 items, I don't care if it's a list or a generator. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me, right? But like, if you're doing data science, you may care. Yeah, you know, de- If you're doing definitely. big data type. Um, so, and, yeah, you know, it really matters. I cared like testing instruments. I had to stick with 2.7 for even a year ago uh, because uh, the um, the library I used to interface with the instruments was not uh, was not on Python 3, but now it is. So, yay. Hey, that's awesome. Uh, what did I want to talk about? I wanted to talk about a few more things. I I think I think everybody should check out your stuff. I think it's exciting. Um, the uh, definitely subscribe to the podcast, but the also the uh, for me, I think the uh, if you're kind of just a nerd and like to learn stuff, the third your third course Python for Entrepreneurs sounds really exciting. Um, but I think everybody should go check out the second one. Even if you're experienced Python, and and I think that's worthwhile for everybody. Um, but uh, so, how do people find out about this stuff? Where is it again? Well, yeah. So the website for the podcast is tr- uh, talkpython.fm. There's a training subdomain, but you don't really have to know about that. If you want to go check out the courses, the first like beginner course is talkpython.fm/course. The Pythonic one is talkpython.fm/pythonic. And the entrepreneur one is slash launch. And that, that's all you need to know. Okay. Um, and I'm going to put you on the spot and ask if we can give away a copy of, of one of these courses. Yes. I, I would love to give away a copy to some of your listeners. So absolutely. Let's, uh, let's give away a copy of uh, uh, one copy of each. How's that? That sounds great. And I will draw those. I, I should probably put some limits on it. Uh, whenever this goes out, um, I'll uh, I'll put some information at the end, but I'll give everybody like, I don't know, like three weeks to, to sign up and then I'll give it away. Yeah, beautiful. I'm happy happy to do it. That sounds too long. <laughs> Whatever works for you. That's cool. How long do you usually give people? I usually give them a week. Okay, let's let's tighten it up. One week, man. Don't mess around. You got to, you know, act. Yeah. Act or, or miss the opportunity, right? Yeah, and so how you how you so how do how do they sign up? Well, I've I've got a mailing list, so sign up at uh, pythontesting.net, right? Pythontesting.net/slash/subscribe. Awesome. And and I'll pick one person out of my email list, and and or I guess as many copies as I got. So three three courses, three. I'll pick three people. So 
It's good. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You are moving to Portland. I can't wait to get back. We've met twice. So we've had lunch together. So we've only shared beers twice. Uh, seems 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 wrong. It's definitely wrong. So I'm glad glad you're coming back. If everybody anybody's listened to your show before, you always ask people about their favorite package and what editor they use. So I'm going to ask you. So what, oh, excellent. What Pi Pi package would you recommend to somebody? So there, there are so many popular ones, but I always try to ask that question to highlight things that are maybe not the first thing that comes to people's mind. And so one of the things, you know, thinking around this entrepreneur course, like one of the things that just boggles my mind is every time I want to create a new major website, I have to like reinvent user management. <laughs> I have to, I, I know there's sort of like, built-in, pre-built things, but it always seems like, okay, that's close, but that's that's actually not. There's something different about this time that I got to create user accounts differently. Right? And so the the packages I really like is this thing called Passlib, P-A-S-S-L-I-B. So one of the challenges is if you take the username and the password and you put it straight in the database and somebody gets a hold of your database through a SQL injection attack, you know, little Bobby tables, or if they um, somehow just like maybe you lose your dev laptop and it had the data in it, or it doesn't matter how the database gets out in the world, right? If, if it does, that's super bad, right? So the recommendation, of course, is to hash your passwords. And the real recommendation is to hash your passwords with assault. So you would take the password from the person and some other text that you consistently use for that person but is unique to them, and you put that into a bit of, you sort of merge that together somehow, and then you hash that result. And then in the future when you come and you check for the password, you kind of redo that to whatever they enter, and you say, is that the same hash? Yes, okay, great. Well, it turns out with the ability to go to like Amazon, AWS, and get like GPU clusters, Right. Doing that once is not really enough. You actually have to fold those over and over using powerful algorithms. Right. So maybe maybe I need to do that, but then take the output and feed it back into the cycle like 50,000 times so that it's actually computationally hard to answer that. So figuring all that out, figuring out the right balance, the right algorithm, uh, storing the unique salt in a way that's not obvious, all those kinds of things is really challenging. And Passlib solves all that. Oh, cool, because I was already lost. <laughs> so yeah, so if you want to store passwords securely in a database or well, really anywhere, I guess, but typically that that lands in the end in a database, Passlib. Okay, do you talk about that in your uh, in your entrepreneur course? Yeah, it's definitely gonna be there. Okay, cool. And when you, if you want to program Python, what editor do you use? Almost always PyCharm. I love PyCharm. Um, I'm. I guess I would that would call me you know put me in the camp of an IDE guy. But I find myself doing web development where there are many, many files, right, that that somehow come together to make a web app. You know, maybe there's, I don't know, 50 PY files and 10 CSS files and five JavaScript files and so on. And they all come together to mean like something coherent. And what I think is great is PyCharm understands all of that. So if I go and I rename uh, like a function in some script, some Python file, it will apply that to the whole project, right? It understands where it's used, um, does you know all the the fancy stuff for JavaScript, for CSS, and and so on. And also, it understands a lot of the Python idioms. 
So I'm trying to think of some examples right off the top of my head that it does. It certainly does PEP8, but that's pretty obvious. It actually does more than that. It'll say, oh, this way that you're testing code, you're testing some condition for an if statement, this, this could be more Pythonic if you did it this way, and it'll automatically fix it. It also has great testing you know, for your audience. They might, might like that. Like It has built-in code coverage. And so if I go and run the tests against my web app, like the entire project tree will have little percentages by it. Like this file has 47%. That file has 68%. And I open the file, it had like color the lines green and red for the ones that were run or not run during my test. Like all those things add up to be awesome. So PyCharm is my answer. Okay, cool. What if you're writing a letter to your grandma or something like that? If I'm writing a letter to my grandma, uh, Google Docs. I kind of live in Google Docs. Really? Um, if I'm not, I really like Google Docs. Yeah, I, I like just that it's it's not on my computer. I have this policy that my computer should be smashable. It, it's a you know MacBook Pro. I don't want to smash it, but you know it. That, you that's part of my my thing for code. It lives on GitHub. For writing, it lives on on Google Docs. But if I'm doing something else, it's probably Sublime. Okay, yeah. I've, I converted to Sublime recently, um, I guess not really recently, a few years ago. And yeah, it's, it works for me. So Yeah, nice. Right on. But I also live half the time in the command line with Bash. So, um, you know. Yeah, the the drawbacks of depending on the IDEs like PyCharm, which, you know, yeah. I, I, do, I do love them is if I have to SSH into my server... I'm on my own. Yeah, I, I do. I do want to try PyCharm again. Um, I, but I, I use uh, half the time. I'm looking at C plus plus code, so um, I'm not sure if that handles that that well. So we'll see. Yeah, of course. Anyway, um, thanks a ton for having coming on the show, and I wish you luck. And then um, we'll have to have a beer or something when you get back. Yeah, I'll be I'll be back next week, recovering okay. from jet lag. So give give me a few weeks. We'll definitely uh, meet at the Thirsty Line or something. And Brian, thanks for having me on the show. It's, it's been great. Okay, so again, it's talkpython.fm, and that's that's how people see it. Talkpython.fm, yeah, is the jump off point for everything they should check out at the Talk Python space. All right, that wraps it up. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks. Bye bye. Thanks, Michael. Don't forget to go to pythontesting.net slash subscribe and sign up to win those courses. Thanks a lot for listening. Keep calm and write some damn tests. 